can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Anybody seen the movie Vacation? Chevy Chase. They're, they've been driving, I think, from Chicago all the way to the Grand Canyon. They get there. He looks and says, okay, back in the car. <laughs> and folks, in comparison to God's glory, there's nothing on earth that compares to it. That's why it's so hard to define. You can stand out at night and look up at a starry sky when it's pitch black and just be amazed at the wonder of creation. But folks, that pales in comparison to the glory of God. You can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon or Mount Everest or anything you can think of that's glorious by our definition on the planet. It pales in comparison. You could be in a space shuttle and look back at Earth and just wonder at the amazement of this planet. It pales in comparison to the glory of God. I want you to listen to these first few verses Paul writing, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to pick up in verse 7. We left off last week in verse 6. I'm going to start with just verses 7 through 11. We're going to work through the chapter. But I want you to think how many times does the word glory appear just in these few verses. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. By my count, that was ten times in those few verses the word glory occurs. Do you think... Paul was trying to say something important. The answer is yes. In fact, in this passage, he is going to contrast the old covenant, the old glory that came from that, with the new covenant. He's going to contract, contrast death with the Spirit. He's going to contrast condemnation with righteousness. He's going to contrast that which fades away with that which remains. And so first, let's look at this passage, the contrast of glory. He's making a point. He says, but if. So he's about to build up this one concept and then explain to you, as great as that was, and yes, it did have glory compared to what's come. It didn't have glory. He says, listen, if the ministry of death written in letters engraved on stones came with glory, What's he talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments and really all the other laws of the Old Testament. Just to take you back to Exodus, we looked at this briefly last week. God gave the Ten Commandments. He had to give them twice. First time, he, it says he wrote it with his own finger on the stone. Now, what happened to those Ten Commandments? They got broke. <laughs> Good answer. They got broke. Let me tell you how they got broke. God told Moses... Go down off the mountain because the people that you're in charge of are corrupting themselves. Moses comes back down off the mountain and he sees what they had done to corrupt himself and he throws the Ten Commandments, these two tablets down, breaks them into pieces, ultimately grinds them up, puts them in water, makes them drink them. But, but here's the funny thing. He goes back to Aaron because they fashioned this golden calf and he says, Aaron, 
What happened? Well, here's what happened. Moses has been gone for a little while, probably a matter of days. He may have been gone because the second time he leaves, he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. So maybe he's gone for a little while. So the people said, we don't know where Moses is gone. We don't know if he's coming back, so make us something to worship. And so Aaron said, okay, bring me all your jewelry. Bring me your earrings, your ringers, all your ringers. Bring me the rings off your fingers. If you got ringers, bring them too. Anything gold, bring them. We're going to put it in the fire. And the Bible says that Moses, or Aaron took tools and fashioned a calf. Now, that's not the story he told Moses. When Moses comes back and he says, what have you done? Aaron said, I don't know. These people wanted something, so I told them to throw all the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. That's not how it happened. But doesn't that sound kind of like when you're talking to your three-year-old? How'd this happen? How did your sister get a bloody nose? I don't know. She was just minding her own business. Her nose started bleeding. So it didn't have anything to do with the fact that you hit her with Mr. Potato Head. So that's what happened to the original Ten Commandments. And some chapters occur, and Moses goes back up on the mountain, and God tells him this time, bring your own stone and write this down yourself. Gives them to him again. And so when it talks about the fact that it had glory, it did have glory. Why? Because it was from God. But here's how Paul describes it. It was the ministry of death. Why? Because there was no life in the law. The law brought death. The law brought condemnation. Now, was the law bad? No, it was good. It did what it was supposed to do. What did it do? It pointed to our desperate need for a Savior. So what about all those Old Testament saints? How did they get saved? Well, if you read Hebrews and other places, two specific words that it says, it was counted unto them as righteousness. They had faith, they believed, and they obeyed. So how were they counted righteousness? By faith and obedience is how they had righteousness. How do you and I have righteousness? By faith. <laughs> the, the new glory that has come in the new, in the new covenant, aren't we glad we live under the new covenant? It is a great, good thing. But Paul's trying to contrast, to show them how great the new covenant is. He contrasts it with the old covenant. In fact, just to tell you that it was a good thing, here's what Paul said in Romans 7, 7. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul said the law was a good thing. It's a good thing because it's from God, and yes, it had glory. In fact, it reflected the character and purpose of God. The law was pointing to a blessed event in the future. What was it pointing to? It was pointing to the final fulfillment at the cross. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. He came to do what you and I cannot do. That is, live a perfect life, sinless life. He died in our place on the cross, having kept the law perfectly. And so because of that, through him, you and I can have a relationship with God. So here's what happened. The law came with glory, and it said that the children of Israel, Aaron and the other children of Israel, could not even look at the face of Moses. Let me just read the passage. This is Exodus chapter 34. Just, I'm going to just read a few verses, 29 through 33. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, 
And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand. And he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So Moses, because he had been in the presence of God, his face radiated with the presence of God. In fact, we know from other accounts that he didn't see God face-to-face, but God would speak to him as if someone face-to-face. God at, God at one point covers up so that his glory could pass and just catch a glimpse of his glory. And yet, just being in the presence of God radiated through Moses. And it scared people, so he wore a veil. In fact, really, two reasons he wore the veil. One, so he wouldn't scare people. Number two, they wouldn't see that it faded. Because the longer Moses spent away from God, the more deeply the glory of God faded off of his face. So Paul is saying, listen, if that had glory, fading as it was, never intended to be permanent, fading as it was, how much more will the Spirit, will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious? So he contrasts this ministry of death with the ministry of the Spirit. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant demanded righteousness. The New Covenant confers it because of the cross. If the ministry of condemnation had glory, much more the ministry of righteousness and bound in glory. Indeed, what had glory in this case now has no glory. See the contrast? If what fades away had glory, much more what remains has glory. If you have the brightest halogen lamp in your house, at night it puts off a lot of light, doesn't it? What happens when dawn rises and the sun comes in? You can still tell the lamp's on, but it's faded, hasn't it? In light of the glory of the sun, that halogen lamp doesn't look nearly as bright. What's fading, yeah, it had glory. But compared to what's coming and what is now here, it had very little glory. I don't know if you've ever read the book Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, but there, to, to try to illustrate this, I want to read just a brief passage. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, read it. It's John Bunyan. The story of his life is incredible. But it, it's talking about the main character, Christian. It said, The interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because it was never swept. After he had reviewed a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now, when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian almost choked. Then said the interpreter to the, dam- to the damsel that stood by, Bring hither the water and sprinkle the room, that, wi- that when she had done that, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. So Christian says, what, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, The parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law, but she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now, whereas 
Thou sawest that, that soon as the first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about the room that it could not be cleansed, but that you were almost choked. This is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, doth revive, put strength into and increase it in the soul, even as it doth discover and forbid it, for it did not have the power to subdue it. I was trying to translate that as I read it because it has a lot of this and those and thous and dost and dust. But the point is, he's saying this room just had dust in it, and all the law could do was just stir the dust up till it was about to choke Christian. It wasn't until it was sprinkled with the water that illustrated the gospel that it was actually able to be clean. And that's what Jesus Christ did at the cross. Secondly, let's look at the hope of glory, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Second point is this, the hope of glory. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian believers, to the church, to tell them we have a hope because of what Jesus has done. The word hope means confident expectation. But I want you to catch this. Although it was, this hope was ratified at the cross, it's still not fully realized until we are glorified ultimately, with God, face-to-face in heaven. But Paul says, because of this hope, I use great boldness in my speech. What is he saying? Listen, because of what's happened at the cross, even though it hadn't fully been realized, I can speak with all outspokenness and boldness because I know what I'm talking about. What, what, what did Paul encounter in himself? In fact, you want to talk about the old covenant that Paul was wrapped up in that. In Philippians, Paul says, listen, if you wanted to put boldness and confidence in the flesh, I had every reason to do so. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, member of the Sanhedrin, circumcised on the eighth day. He gives you this whole resume until he finally comes to the point of saying, I now look at all of that like it's a filthy rag. It's trash. It has no power. But although I don't possess it fully yet, I use great boldness in, our, in, in my speech. He says, we're not like Moses. He used to put a veil over his face so they couldn't look intently at what the end of what it was fading away. Because their minds were hardened. The word for hardened there is the word petrified. Their minds had become petrified. Had become hardened weren't pliable anymore, couldn't receive new information. That's why when Jesus Christ came to, the, came to the earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross, so many people missed it. Why? Because their minds were hardened. They were petrified. I don't mean petrified out of fear. I just mean something that had petrified and just become hard. In fact, sadly, Paul says, to this very day, when the Scripture is read, there's still a veil. Now, what did Jesus do to the veil at the cross? The veil in the temple that kept man from God's presence, what happened to it? Ripped top to bottom. I got something for you to think about this week. This has been on my mind this 
spring as I studied the Easter message, what do you think they did with that veil? The veil that for hundreds of years had separated them from the presence of God. The high priest could only go back there once a year with fear and trepidation because some people had gone back there and died in the presence of God. At the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, the veil is ripped from top to bottom. Obviously done by God. That's has finally said, come in. Hebrews tells us now we have confidence to enter the throne room of God with boldness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't have an answer to the question. I'm just, what do you think they did with the veil? Do you think they stitched it back up? Do you think they wove a new one? Because for their minds, they had rejected Christ. They had to have something keeping them from God. So the answer to the question, I either think they called the seamstresses in and said, fix this split right here. It's right along the seam. It'll be easy. Or they created a new one. But certainly what Paul's saying is, even today when the Bible's read, when Scripture's read, the truth is revealed, there's a veil. They can't, they can't hear it. They can't see it. How sad. In fact, what amazes me is the heart of both Moses and Paul in light of that. I want you to hear Moses. This is Exodus 32, verse 32. Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. Moses says to God, But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you've written. What's Moses saying? Moses saying, I so desperately want my people to be forgiven that I'd be willing for you to blot my name out of your book. In other words, I'd be willing to miss heaven so that they wouldn't miss heaven. Paul put it this way. Romans 9, 2. Paul says, For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Paul's saying, it is so sad that my brothers that I love dearly, my kinsmen, people I'm related to, the tribe of whom I'm from, they don't get it. And if, if they could just get it, I'd be willing to give it all up. Now, I just got to tell you, I, I'm not willing to do that. I don't know about you, but that shows the sincerity, that shows the heart of a Moses and a Paul that gets it and realizes, I wish desperately that they could understand. I wish the veil would come down for them. Paul says that same veil remains unlifted. Why? Because it's only removed in Christ. He says, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When a person turns to the Lord. Literally, 180. You've heard me say this before. I've I've spoken in a lot of youth camps that God just really does something in some of the students' lives. And they get up to share about it, and they said, you know what? God turned my life around 360 degrees. And of course, if you think about that, you're thinking, wait a minute, you were walking away from God. He turned your life around 360 degrees. You're still walking away from God. So what they mean is 180 degrees. I saw a bumper sticker about a week ago. Try to take a picture of it at the stoplight. But it said it right, because I've seen this sticker say it wrong before. It says, if you're on the wrong road, God allows U-turns. Y'all ever seen that one? If you're on the wrong road, God allows U-turns. Well, I'm somebody that thinks about stuff, and I think, wait a minute. If I'm on the wrong road, and I make a U-turn, I'm still on the wrong road. If you're on I-20, and you're supposed to be on I-26, you can make all the U-turns you want. You're still, you need to get off that road. 
Now, the bumper sticker I saw going up Glens Bay Road about a week ago, I took a picture of, doesn't show up good because of the sun, but it says, if you're heading in the wrong direction, God allows you to turn. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about if you're willing to turn your back on everything you trusted in except God, and what did the Hebrew people trust it in? They trusted in birthright. They trusted in the fact they'd done everything according to the law to the best of their ability. None of them would say, hey, I've perfectly kept the law. They would basically say, I've done my best. Well, their best was never good enough. And Paul says if they would turn away from that and turn to the living God, the veil's removed. In fact, three words I want you to get this morning that happens are words justified, sanctified, and glorified. Put these in context. What, when does justification take place? It takes place at conversion. You're justified. I heard someone put it this way. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Let me say it's actually better than that. It is just as if you'd never sinned. When you come before God now justified as if you're forgiven, you've never sinned. But it's really just as if I'd always done everything right. That's justified. Sanctified is a progress that began at salvation. And Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.6. He said, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. So we're in the process. If you're a child of God, you're in the process of being sanctified. What does that mean? God is whittling away at your life to make you look more like Jesus. Now how about the word glorified? When does that happen? That happens, folks, when we see God face to face. That's heaven. We're finally, ultimately, fully glorified in Christ. So that's the hope we have. Lastly, let's look at the transformation. Last two verses. Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There's that word again in one verse three times. So in our passage this morning, it's occurred 13 times, the glory of God. I think it was a word Paul thought was important. It's a word we need to get this morning. So Paul affirms the deity of the Spirit by saying the Lord is the Spirit. The word Lord means supreme in authority. And where the Spirit is, there's freedom. Understand, the law was a jailer. The law kept you enslaved. The Spirit has come. By trusting Christ, you have been set free. There is liberty, literally freedom, unrestrained, no longer a slave. And then verse 18, but now we have unveiled faces. The veil that separated us from understanding God is gone. With unveiled faces. We're beholding as in a mirror. Why does he say mirror? Well, mirrors in the first century were polished metal. The only place you'll see this now is at a public high school. <laughs> they don't trust high school students with glass anymore, so they've turned all the mirrors into metal. And it's probably a good thing. But you don't see as clearly in a metal mirror as you do in a glass mirror, and still you're not seeing face-to-face. So Paul is still talking about this future hope. He says, now we're being transformed. We're beholding as in a mirror. We're catching the glimpse, but we still don't have it in its fullness. But we're being transformed. That's the word metamorphosis. 
Same word that would be used of a caterpillar crawling into a cocoon and coming out a butterfly. I did some research this week. Have you ever wondered, how long does a caterpillar stay in a cocoon before it becomes a butterfly? Depends on the caterpillar. Some of them takes a couple of weeks. Some of them it takes years. But what's happening? They're being transformed. Isn't it amazing that something that was crawling around on the earth, kind of fuzzy, spins a cocoon and comes out flying? That's what happens with us, folks. We come to God kind of crawling in sin. But what Jesus Christ does because of the work of the cross is metamorphosis takes place. We're being transformed. We're flying now. There's liberty because of God's grace. But Paul says now with unveiled faces, we're looking like we would a mirror. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What's God doing? He's transforming us into the image of his son. The Bible puts it this way. One day, in the twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be changed. We're, we're being transformed from glory to glory. This is that sanctification process that's at work in your life, regardless of how old you are. When you come to Christ in faith, he saves you, you're justified, and he's begun a work in you. Until he sees you face to face in heaven. You're being sanctified. He's transforming you into the image of His Son. And His work's not finished until He says it's finished. And He takes you home to be with Him. That's where it gets finished. But we're being transformed just as from the Lord. So here's my question as we close. Have you ever trusted Christ? What Paul's saying to these people is you've got to quit trust in the law and I recognize that's what you've heard from the time you were born up until this very day. But if you do, there's a veil between you. It cannot save you. The blinders have to come off. The veil's got to drop. You've got to see Christ in all of his glory and run to him for salvation. That's what the law pointed to. Now, you and I weren't raised in that same culture. But you know what I recognize? In this culture, apart from Christ, you're still trying to save yourself. And some people do a pretty good job at being good people. They, they go on mission trips or they do this for the community, they do that. And all of those are good things. But if your motive behind doing it is I'm scoring points with God, you can't do enough. You can't do enough. When you face God one day, he's not going to say, how many good deeds did you do on earth? He's already going to know what you did about Jesus. And by placing faith in Jesus, God welcomes us into his kingdom. And we spend eternity with him because we've placed our faith in a Savior who did what we can't do. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for that truth. May it resonate in our hearts. It sounds simple, but I know for some it's so hard because it means turning your back on everything you've ever tried. For the Jewish people, it was difficult. And even to this day, when scriptures are read, Old Testament scriptures that they're familiar with, they're still a veil. They don't see the fulfillment in Christ. 
So God, thank you today when one person turns to you, the blinders are off, the veil is lifted. And God, if there's someone in this place this morning that needs to do that, would they turn to you and acknowledge that you are their Savior? Acknowledge their need for you and place their faith there. Thank you for this truth in Christ's name. Amen. Have a